been looking in the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, uh, times when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and let's stand together, we're going to look this morning at one precious pearl, one precious pearl, Matthew chapter 13, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> Jesus is the king of all kings. And uh, as such, he has a kingdom, a very real kingdom. But it's a kingdom that is not like any other kingdom in this world. And he tells us that very plainly in John chapter 18 and verse 36. Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. That is, it is not of any kind like any other kingdom uh, that has ever been made by men. My kingdom is not of this world. And he also would go on then and, and to warn people uh, about the danger of a false allegiance to this kingdom. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many in that day, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, if Jesus is a very real king and there's a very real kingdom, then we have to expect that he's going to talk to us about how we become a subject of that kingdom. How do you enter that kingdom? And obviously, he talks about a people who would make a very superficial kind of expression toward God, toward the Lord, and in fact, call him master. And do a lot of things for him. And yet, they would not have a relationship with him. Not a real one. And in fact, when they stand before him in that day of judgment, he will say to them, depart from me. You that work lawlessness, I, I never knew you. And so he tells us that there is something about doing what, what he says. Doing the will of the Father, doing what He tells us to do. I'm not here to tell you this morning in any way, shape, or form that salvation is by works, because it's not. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But yet Jesus says very plainly, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. We've got to ask ourselves the question then, what is the Father's will? We don't have to wonder about it. When it came to the kingdom, Mark chapter 1 tells us exactly what this is all about. In verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. 
Uh, you see, Jesus made it very clear. He was preaching to a group of people who believed that their salvation was, and their relationship with God was based on the fulfillment of the law. It's ironic then that he would call them a lawless group of people. Why? Because they rejected what he plainly told them. What they needed to do was repent of their sins and believe on the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, after all these many centuries, we're still preaching the same thing Jesus preached. We're telling people to repent, repent of our sins. That means we have to turn from our sin, turn to God. We have to recognize ourselves as sinners. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're not a sinner here this morning, I'm going to tell you, Jesus doesn't have anything for you. <laughs> well, we ain't got nothing to worry about, amen, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, if you're a sinner, I've got good news for you. That's what the gospel means. Jesus Christ died for you. And he didn't just die, he was buried. And he didn't stay buried, he rose again the third day. And he gives them the message that whoever believes in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that we, Jesus came preaching. What did he tell us to do? Acknowledge our sin. And believe the good news of the gospel. So as Jesus is talking to them and about the kingdom and giving them an understanding of what this kingdom is because his kingdom is not like any other kingdom. So he tells them these stories to illustrate that. He comes to that part that has to do with how do you get in on it? How do you become a part of, of the kingdom? Now, Actually, this morning we're going to be looking at two stories. I talked about the one precious pearl, but there's another one just before it. And we're going to combine them because their message is similar. And I'm going to read them to you now and put them on the screen so you can see how these two go together. Verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then the pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, the common characteristic of these two stories, of course, is that both of them involve a person who found something of great value. And what they found of great value then caused them to go out and give up all that they had, sell everything that they had in order to obtain that one thing that they found of great, great value. Now right up front I'm going to tell you that there are aspects of this parable that fit very well with the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And if you approach these uh, two parables, these two stories in that way, uh, then you and I would be the pearl and you and I would be the treasure. And Jesus then would be the one who would be giving all that he had in order to obtain us. And I don't mind telling you, I preached it that way myself. <laughs> and I may do it again. And a whole lot of great Bible scholars uh, believe that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us in the kingdom. Uh, but when you look at it in the overall context of what he's doing and, and who he's talking about, we recognize right quick 
that Jesus has changed his audience. I mean, he starts out preaching to a vast crowd, and now he's down to just his disciples. They've been asking him questions. He explained the parable of the sower. He explained the parable of the tares among the wheat. And now he's giving them these parables, short parables. He doesn't explain them. He doesn't give us an interpretation because the disciples didn't ask him to. They understood it. And I think within the context, there's a different interpretation. I think uh, that though we can make many applications of this, and there's a certain flexibility of application with these stories, I'm not going to tell you uh, that every preacher you've ever heard preach that we're the pearl and that we're the treasure and that Jesus is the one who gave it all. I'm not going to tell you that they were wrong, and I'm not going to admit that I was wrong when I preached it that way because there's a certain flexibility of application. It's a rule of Bible study that goes like this. Every passage has only one interpretation. That is, it means exactly what it means. But it can have different applications. That is, you can apply passages in different ways. Uh, one interpretation, one meaning. But there is a flexibility of application. And so this morning, I'm going to play this out for you and just look at it very plainly uh, in the context that it was given to those disciples in Jesus' day. And we'll look first of all at the parable of the treasure in the field. It was very common in Bible times for people to hide valuables in the ground. Uh, they were constantly subject to war, to invasion, uh, to having their, their families attacked. Uh, it was not uncommon for whole families then to either be killed or carried off in captivity. And there were no banks, no secure places to put your wealth. And so it was very, very, very common for these ancient peoples to hide their valuables, especially if they understood that there was a coming invasion, there was a threat coming, and therefore they would hide their most precious possessions. Very, very common thing. It was also very common... <laughs> Because of the wars, because of the abductions, because people were commonly carried off into slavery for whoever it was that buried the treasure in the field to never be heard from again. Gone and nobody knows who they were. It was not always a requirement that they would bury these things even on their own property. And so just because it was on someone's property was no indication that it belonged to them or they had any relationship to it. Because of that, rabbinical tradition and law in the Jewish time was kind of like our famous law, finders, keepers. <laughs> finders, keepers. But that was literally the law because if you found a treasure out there, then it was considered yours. There was no one else who had a tie to it. It was yours. And so what Jesus proposes in this parable is a little bit different than what the disciples would have understood because had the finder of that treasure simply taken it, then that would have been perfectly within the law. It would have been all right. But instead, when this man found the treasure in the field, he hides it again in the same place, just covers it right back up, hides it again in the same field. And then he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy the field because he knows that there's something in the field very valuable. 
treasure. The treasure. That would have been unusual. Because in a way then, the finder of this treasure would have been sharing at least a part of the value of the treasure with the landowner, which he was really under no obligation to do under their law. So by finding this and then going out and buying the field, uh, the landowner then would become a partial recipient of the value. And the disciples apparently were not puzzled by this story at all. They didn't see anything unusual, anything unethical. Uh, they just would have seen this man doing something unusual when he hides the treasure again under the risk that someone else might come along and find it. And that he goes and makes unusual steps in order to do right by the owner of the property. The point is, is that he had to sell everything he had in order to buy the field. He sold everything in order to gain something of greater value. He exchanged what was rather meager at best for something of incredible worth. Then there's the parable of the pearl. Actually, the parable of the merchant because Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like the pearl. He said the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in the field. But then he says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man. This is not just a, an, uh, any kind of a merchant man because this man, merchant, is in the pearl business. Today we'd call him a, a wholesaler. The man who found the treasure in the field is not called a treasure hunter. But the man who found the one pearl of great price was a merchant and he was in the pearl business. Pearls were very, very valuable in Bible times. In fact, some go so far as to say that it was considered to be the most valuable of all of the gemstones uh, in Bible time was the pearl. So here's a man, a wholesaler. He's in the pearl business. He finds one pearl of incredible value. He wants it. But in order to buy that one pearl, he has to empty out all of his other inventory. He has to give up all that he has and then be able to buy that one pearl of incredible price. So he's left with nothing, but he has the pearl. Now the similarities of the two stories are readily apparent, but the differences between the two might be a little more subtle to us. Hang in here with me this morning. I, I know this is maybe a little different, a little complicated, but hang in here. The value of the pearl would have been apparent to anyone who was in the pearl business. But the treasure in the field was hidden. Who, who knows how many years that the man had owned the property that had a great treasure in it, had no idea it was there. He had walked over it, maybe farmed on it. Who knows how many people had stepped around it or over it or worked the field, but they had never found the treasure. It was there all the time, but they didn't find it. And until it was discovered, no one knew, not the landowner, not anybody knew that the treasure was there. You say, how do you know the landowner didn't know that it was there? He wouldn't have sold the field if he would have known the treasure was there. So even the landowner did not know that there was a great treasure in that field. 
Nobody knew it was there until it was discovered. So what does that tell us then about Jesus' kingdom? Jesus said it's like a treasure hid in a field. Now to me, that one statement makes the meaning of the parable clear. See, Jesus began preaching the gospel of the kingdom after John was put in prison and both Jesus and John were sent to the Jewish people. John the apostle would put it this way in John chapter 1 and verse 10. He, that's Jesus, was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You see, the field... I think was Israel. It was the Jewish people. The treasure. And Jesus specifically says the kingdom is the treasure hidden in a field. Israel didn't recognize that they had a treasure. They didn't see it as a treasure. They did not understand its value. He came unto his own. But his own received him not. But there then was the discoverer. There, there were those who, who were going to see the treasure and recognize it as being incredibly value, where, uh, valuable. Where Israel as a whole would reject him, there would be those who would receive him. And in fact, Jesus was addressing himself to his very own disciples. And he was telling them about his kingdom. And though Israel as a whole had not recognized the treasure they had, they had. It's in keeping then with that decision to hide it again in the field. <laughs> because in a way that's exactly what was done. The kingdom was given to Israel. They didn't recognize how valuable it was. They didn't know it. They didn't see it. The king of kings was there in their midst and they didn't know who he was. They rejected him. Some found it. And what they do? They hit it right back in the same field. Let's remember... <laughs> All of the apostles were Jews. So remember the first church was in where? Jerusalem. Let's remember that for many years all of the church was made up of what? Jews. It was not until Cornelius came along that, that people were, who were completely Gentiles, lo and behold, they found out that they were going to be the recipients of the kingdom and brought in on the exact same level as the Jews. No difference, no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. And Jesus tells them something very plain. The finders of that treasure then would give up all they had in order to purchase the field and obtain the treasure. You see, continuing to seek the salvation of the Jewish people, the field, would cost those men Jesus was talking to everything. As far as this life is concerned, they would all die as martyrs except for one. Paul the Apostle would put it this way in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. For indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. 
In fact, Jesus would actually have that very conversation with them. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. We all wish you'd have left that part out. With persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, Jesus was giving to these men a very, very specific lesson about the kingdom. And he didn't even stop there. He goes on then and and, and repeats it in a different way. The kingdom is like a merchant man. Not the pearl, a merchant man who is in the pearl business. And when he finds that one pearl a great price, he goes and sells all that he had and bought it. Remember this merchant man was seeking pearls. He was in the pearl business. He was an expert in pearls. And because he was an expert in pearls, he would be quick to recognize the value of this one incredible pearl. Perfect, flawless, beautiful, incredibly valuable. And in order to get the pearl, he was going to have to give up all that he had. All the other pearls in his inventory would be gone. Such a pearl would not be unknown. It would, it would make headlines in the, among the pearl merchants of the world. They would all see it. But you see, a lot of them would look at this prospect and say, that's not good business. I mean, if I have to give up everything I have in order to gain that one pearl, I mean, the only way that I'm ever going to get anything back is I've got to sell it, put it on the market. But how am I even going to market it? Because I don't have any money to travel with. We've got a very, very, very small market for people who might be able to value, buy such an incredible pearl. I mean, we look at this and it's not real good business. And no doubt the disciples would have recognized that too. See, they didn't ask for explanation, and that kind of indicates to me they figured this one out, and we should too. You know, Simon Peter talked about the stone which the builders rejected, how it becomes the head of the corner. Now, if anybody should have recognized the value of that stone, it should have been the builders. They were the experts, after all. They should have recognized that this was the most important stone in the whole structure of all people. The builders should have recognized it. You see, that was just what the Jews were. They were the experts on the Messiah. They knew the prophets. They knew that it was time for for Jesus to be born. And it was the Gentiles from the east who came asking, Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? Jews were oblivious. They didn't recognize it. When they did finally recognize who he was, they immediately would understand that in order to receive Jesus and what he was teaching, they were going to have to give up what they had. 
temple. That vast temple that they were so proud of. Remember the disciples taking Jesus up and saying, look at this temple. <laughs> look at the great stones. Remember what Jesus said? Tear this building down in three days I'll build it up again. He was telling him all along, this temple's being replaced by another one. He would say, of all places uh, uh, and to all people, to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and verse 20, in Samaria of all places, as, as she said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Later on, Jesus would teach His disciples that wherever, 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 Two or three of you will gather together in my name. There will I be in the midst of them. Aren't you glad we don't have to go to Jerusalem every time we want to worship the Lord? Huh? Aren't you glad? <laughs> now is. One of the things they crucified Jesus for, one of the things they accused him of, was blaspheming the temple. Don't think the Jews didn't understand that receiving Jesus meant they were going to have to give up their temple. Meant they were going to have to give up their temple worship. Meant they were going to have to give up all of that sacrificial system, all their festivals, all those things, all of that incredible worship system built around the temple in Jerusalem, all that was going to go away. They were right. You see, the Bible tells us, among many other things that happened when Jesus died, that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, and the access into the Holy of Holies was made fully available through Jesus Christ, what the writer of the book of Hebrews called a new and living way. And that meant that Judaism, in all of its pomp, and all of its ceremony, and all of its tradition, had been rendered forever obsolete. They knew that. In order to get, take then what Jesus had, these experts, the merchants, who of all would have recognized the value of the pearl, they weren't willing to pay the price. In order to receive Jesus, they were going to have to leave, give up what they had. Many weren't willing to make that decision. But some were. Jesus was addressing then those men who would be his apostles. And they indeed had made that choice. When all of the other crowds of people, the vast host of people, turned away from Jesus and went away. And he put that question directly to them. Will you also go away? Thank God for Simon Peter who said it best. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. They had already made their choice. It's already set and settled in their minds. 
It's going to cost them all. They were okay with that. Because they had had the pearl. And they knew that the kingdom, Jesus, what he was offering, was of far better value than what he was asking them to leave behind. It was Jim Elliott who famously said, He is no fool. This is a page from his journal, by the way, his own handwriting. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to obtain what he cannot lose. Would anybody here say that the apostles made the wrong choice? No. They made the right choice. Though it would cost them all, Though other merchants refused to pay the price, refused to give up what they had in order to obtain what Jesus offered, would we call the apostles, would we call them fools? No. No. So how does this come down to us exactly? We can see it in its historical context. I've tried my best to put it before you today. Jesus talking to his disciples. And uh, uh, there was a, a, a national concept that Jesus was presenting because, of course, the kingdom came to the Jews. The Messiah was the Messiah to the Jewish nation. They were rejecting him. They did not recognize him. Some did, and they were willing to give up everything in order to take what Jesus was offering. And that's the way his kingdom operated. What's that mean to us? Well, the kingdom is still like a treasure that a lot of people don't know is there. We live in a world full of people who do not recognize the incredible treasure that Jesus offers us in eternal life. Whatever we give up, we get far more in return. We may lose relationships because we follow Jesus Christ, but what a great big family we're a part of when we're a part of the family of God. Whatever it is that we lose pales in significance to what we gain because we gain what we cannot lose. What is ours for all eternity? One of the biggest problems, I think, in American Christianity today is illustrated, though, right here in these passages because I'm afraid that we don't really recognize the value of the treasure we receive in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're unwilling to give up what we have for it. We can see the pearl of great price, but are we willing to give ourselves for it? You see, American Christianity has almost exclusively and completely defined itself by what we get out of it rather than what we give or what we give up. So I'm just going to read a few passages of Scripture for you today to remind you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own my body my choice my life 
My choice? Not for those who bow the knee to heaven's king. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Acts chapter 20 verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves. This is Paul the apostle speaking here to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I want to say to you again this morning, no amount of money that we could give, no amount of sacrifice that we could ever make could purchase our salvation because Jesus paid it all. But it is also true that when he saved us, he redeemed us from our sins and he bought us at a very high price. We're not our own anymore. We belong to Him. We increasingly consider our faith in terms only of what it does for me. I get heaven. I get God's blessings and guidance and favor. We're really big on favor. We look for churches today based on what we like in singing and preaching, what it does for me and my family. And if it stops doing for me what I want, then there's another one down the road that are that will... But my question is, if we continue to define our faith on the basis only of what we get out of it, then who is exactly is the real king in that scenario? Who is serving who? The kingdom of Christ was presented to those 12 men who went around the world, and thank God they did, and they went out everywhere. I know they didn't cross the ocean. I'm not telling you that. But I mean, they went around all over like Jesus said. They went as far as they could go till they died. Spreading the gospel. And we're so glad they did. See, they gave up all for the kingdom. And they did it joyfully. That's the story. They did it with excitement. Eagerly. Enthusiasm. Why? They were willing to give up what they couldn't keep. To gain what they couldn't lose. They were willing to turn their back on what they had. Because they devoted themselves to another king and another kingdom. Two stories today. Thank you for your patience and your time. It's a very convicting passage for me and I think for all of us. We need to ask ourselves, who really is king in our world? Who's the real king? What kingdom are we serving? Do we think that Jesus is only here to serve us? Get us what we want, 
make our life better, give us heaven, all this and heaven too? Or are we here to serve him? I think the passages we've looked at this morning give us the real scriptural answer to that question. How we apply it is going to be up to all of us. Let's stand together, please.